Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. I've had a real privilege and honor and kind of an unfair advantage over the last uh, 20 plus years now. I'm getting to that age where I say like 20 plus years. Um, And that uh, when I was a fresh graduate from Texas State University, at that time called Southwest Texas State University, I had been serving at a college ministry there. And the church that was kind of the mothership over that college ministry said to me, hey, would you stay and keep doing what you're doing and we'll pay you money? And I said, thank you, Jesus. Yes, absolutely. I will stay. And so I got to uh, work with college students and be a worship leader and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and it kind of turned into just uh, in every season, the Lord would, would open up an opportunity. They say, hey, can you do this? Can you lead that? Can you? And so here I am today, and I've been in ministry for 20 plus years. And one of the unfair advantages that I've had is that it was part of my job to gather with God's people. Today, we're starting a new series. And it's called The Lost Arts. The Lost Arts. And um, what we're going to be talking about are what are the things that modern life has a way of threatening with extinction when it comes to the body of Christ, living as a follower of Jesus? What are the things, if we had a most endangered species list of the Christian life, what would be on that list? And what does the scripture say about it? And today I want to start the series by talking about the lost art of gathering. The lost art of gathering. Um, You know, I am a a parent with a wonderful wife. We have three boys that are into all kinds of things between school and sports. Um, We're busy people, like a lot of you. You have a lot going on in your lives. Casey and I both work full-time jobs. And I found, this is in my season of life, that even as a pastor, there's something about the busyness that makes it hard for us to really gather with the people of God. And it seems that more and more Christians are in the habit of neglecting to gather together. And by the way, if this is your first time back to church in a while, I'm not trying to be the the condemning pastor. Why aren't you here more often? That's not what the point of this sermon is, okay? It's not a shame and guilt thing. I'm not here to cast condemnation. I really want to cast vision from Scripture of why do we gather on a weekly basis, The Barna Research Group put together some information. They've been tracking Christianity in America since the 80s. And 
I found some, some information this week that was interesting when it comes to gathering. Because not only is the speed of life working against gathering, we had this little thing called a pandemic um, that you may have heard about in the news. And obviously that has made it hard for Christians to gather because in some places across our nation, you couldn't gather, you couldn't assemble. There, there was a fear associated with being with people because of coronavirus. And I understand all of that. But before all of that happened, there were some things happening. And if you can go to the slide that has the, the first uh, graph for me, this shows weekly church attendance from 1993 to 2020, okay? So this all is within my lifetime, most of your lifetimes. Some of you are our younger crew and you're like, ah, 1993, I don't know what that was. You can see the pattern here of gathering and 93, 45%. We had this, this in the 2000, you know, eight, seven, eight, nine, this 48%, 45%. But now if you look at even 2017 to 2020, 27% to 29% of Christians in America gather for weekly church attendance. That's fascinating to me. If you can go to the next slide for me. So weekly church attendance by generation, okay? So here's the interesting thing is you would think that uh, if, if you can see um, the elders line, that's that darker line on the very top. That's the generation that would be um, kind of the, an older generation that have been very steady in church attendance. If you see that, that's dropped from 53% to 37%. We have the boomers, be my parents' age, 44% down to 32%. We have the Gen Xers, my crew, from 44% down to 29%. That bottom number, millennials, from 32% to 25%. So it's like across every age and stage of life, it's going down. I think there's one more, if you can go to the next one for me. And this is fascinating to me. How Americans relate to Christianity is changing. That top line that's kind of a reddish color, I don't know if you can see that very well on this screen. It shows how um, we're changing. Those, that red line are practicing Christians. And at 2009, 50%, right, are practicing Christians, but if you look down to today, 25% would identify themselves as a practicing Christian that believes Jesus is the Messiah and Lord and that they are a weekly part of church and they, they say that that's important to their life. They're practicing Christians. So from 50% to 25% in the span of about, uh, what, 12 years? And that bottom line, that non-Christian line, is rising from 20% in 2000 to 32% in 2020. And then there's this, this other line that are non-practicing Christians, meaning I believe in Jesus, but I'm not active in my faith. I'm not a part of a faith community. I'm not engaged in that way. Look at the rise in this light blue line. 
from 33% all the way up to 43%. So you see the trends of practicing Christians going down, non-practicing Christians going up, and a rise in agnosticism and atheism. And my question is, what comes first? To no longer gather, and then to think, I'm not so sure about all that stuff anymore. Or is it, I'm not so sure about that stuff anymore, and so I'm not gonna gather? I don't know the answer to that. But today, I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 10. Because the writer of Hebrews, who's unidentified, we don't know who this person was, talks about this, and apparently there's nothing new under the sun, and this was happening way back in the very early days when there were many Jewish Christians. The letter to the Hebrews is written to Hebrew believers, people that were Jewish. And he's going to talk about this art of gathering, and it's, it's a powerful passage. I'm going to start in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Now, what you're going to see is in the book of Hebrews, he's going to take the Old Testament symbols, the temple worship the curtain, the temple place, the sacrifice. And he's going to connect the dots to how Jesus is the fulfillment of this old temple worship system. So he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. He's talking about the curtain that uh, separated the, the, the kind of the, the holy place from the most holy place where the manifest presence of God resided, where a priest would go in once a year. And if that priest did not, had not dealt with the sin in his life, that priest would die in the presence of God. I mean, this is holy. And he says, we have boldness to enter there. He's inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good words, good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other in all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Quick question, what day are they going to see approaching? What's the day he's talking about? It's the day of Christ's return. The day of glory and judgment. He says, look, as you see the day approaching, Jesus returning, the, the scriptures will be fulfilled, like the day's coming. And here's some things that I want you to do beforehand. 
One of the themes that we see in the book of Hebrews is a theme of perseverance. Perseverance. When things are hard, when God's people are going through difficulty, when there's persecution, where they're getting thrown out of synagogues because they proclaim that Jesus is Messiah, it's like, he, he, I, I just want you to persevere. And in the midst of the perseverance, he talks about the art of gathering, and he uses a word, and the word is habit. In fact, can you just say the word habit with me? One, two, three, habit. The habit of not gathering. That's what he talks about. Now, the word habit is a settled tendency or a usual manner of behavior. You probably have lots of habits in your life, okay? You might not, might not even realize that you have habits in your life because when we use the word habit, we only think of it as like, you know, you have a drug habit, you have an alcoholism habit, you have, you, you think of, I have a habit of biting my fingernails, right? You only think of the negative use of the word, but I want you to think of the positive use of the word habit, a settled tendency or a usual manner of behavior. And the author uses the word this way, the habit of neglecting to meet together. That's the normal behavior for them, the habit of neglecting together, to gather together. But in the positive, what he's saying is make it a habit to gather together, right? That's what he's saying. Make it a habit to gather together. Now, by the way, if you study the life of Jesus, you're going to see that Everywhere that Jesus went, he first went into their synagogue and began to teach or to read from the scroll. That was the Jewish church gathering. And Jesus regularly was there even though his life and his ministry and the finished work of the cross was going to radically alter their system of worship. He was there. Paul when you, if we study the life of Paul, it says that as was his custom, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. Meaning, Paul was regularly in the synagogue when he was ministering to people. We see it in the early church. Later on, when Paul's on trial, he talks about how he persecuted the church, and he's like, I would go from synagogue to synagogue, and I would find out who the Jesus followers were, and I would, you know, I would haul them out of there. Meaning that the, the very first Christians were gathering regularly. He says, make it a habit to get together. Now, Every habit, which every one of us has the habit, they are these repeated patterns of behavior or routines. For example, when I wake up, the first thing I do in the morning is I walk to the kitchen. And we bought this coffee machine. Guys, if you're a Keurig user, just talk to me after the service. Send me an email. I'm going to change your life with the most amazing coffee maker Okay, so yesterday my wife brings me a Starbucks. We're at a soccer game, and I had my coffee from home, and guess which was better? Coffee from my house. Okay, it's gonna change life. So here's what I do, and that's this beloved part of my day. I walk to the kitchen, 
I get my Renaissance Church coffee mug, which by the way, we have some in the back for you. The most anointed coffee mug you'll ever drink coffee out of. It's amazing. And I hit, I hit a one button and it makes it for me. Fresh, beautiful coffee. And I have a chair right there and I sit in my chair and I drink coffee. It's my habit. And I love my coffee habit. Because for me, I love the taste of coffee, number one, and it helps me wake up in the morning. You see, every habit is made up of a cue, which would be a time of day, a feeling, uh, an action. There's some sort of cue that triggers in your mind, this is what I always do at this time or when this happens, it's my habit. And then there's a reward, okay? Now, every habit is made up of a cue, a habit, and a reward. Today, I want to talk about what are the rewards of gathering, making it a habit of gathering with God's people. What are the rewards of that? Because in the book, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, one of, the, one of the key findings was that we don't repeatedly do things until there's a desire or a reward associated with that repeated behavior. Does that make sense? Cue, habit, reward. So let's look at this passage and let's dive into what the author says. The, the first thing that we saw in, in the beginning of this passage is he's talking about the therefore. Now, you know that a therefore is there for a reason. And he's talking about the finished work of Jesus, what he's done for us. And so he says, you know, you know since we have boldness through this inaugurated new way that he's made for us through the curtain, since we have a great high priest, verse 22, he says, here's what I want you to do. Let us draw near with a true heart, a true heart, a genuine heart, a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. See, the first thing is that we gather to pursue God's presence together. That's what he's talking about. You have confidence. You have access through Jesus to go into the most holy place. Wow. That your sins are washed away through Christ. That your body's been washed in pure water in our, in our baptism, our confession of our faith. We can go in to the most holy place. We can access the presence of the most high God, the living one, the creator, the sustainer, the maker of all things. You can go in and be with him. And you might say, and many Christians apparently are saying, according to this Barna report, that I draw near to God when I read the Bible in the morning. I draw near to God when I pray. I draw near to God when I drive in my car and I, and I put on my favorite worship music and it helps me draw near to God, in which I would say to all of that, awesome, praise God. It's amazing. But that's, 
not the word that he uses here. He uses the word us. Let us draw near. Our hearts sprinkled clean. Our bodies washed. He's using language of a group of people, us. We, let's go in together. I found a quote uh, by a pastor. He's a friend. His name is Jeff Metters, and he wrote an article. And the article was uh, entitled, Five Questions to to Diagnose Your Spiritual State. And he said, while Jesus is a personal Lord, he's not a private one. While Jesus is a personal Lord, he's not a private one. You see, there are currents in our culture, the current of individualism, which always flows towards me, my experience, what I want. And this current of individualism, it always leads us to isolation. You have this device in your pocket. This is an amazing device right here, right? I I can call my friends across the globe. With this device, I can see their faces and talk to them live with it. It's amazing what I can do with this device. But this device also has a powerful way of drawing me into me. Right, this. Dad, can you help me with this? I'm busy right now. What? Doing what? I don't know. I'm just vegging on my phone. You see, there's this current of individualism that's just hyper-focused on me, and it leads to isolation. We also have the current of consumerism, which is all about um, what I get for something. And when it comes to our church experience, we say, well, if I come, what do I get? If I give you an hour or hour and a half, what do I get in return? And there's this sort of mindset that is just part of the fabric of our culture of individualism and consumerism. And the thing about consumerism is it always leads us to disillusionment. It leads us to disillusionment. When everything's about me and my experience and what I'm going to get in return, it actually leads me to a disillusioned life. And I think that in some ways as the church, we've tried to meet people where they are. And I'm not like slamming anyone, but we use the language of short, relevant sermons, inspirational music, safe and excellent kids ministry. What more could you want? And I just want to ask the question, is that really why we gather? For short sermons and inspirational music? And so we can send our kids off to like a safe kids ministry? Is that why we gather? Was the Son of God crucified for short, inspirational sermons and some moving music? His body was torn according to the writer, so that we could go in to the presence of the Most High God. 
And so as the church, when we gather, the art of gathering is this, that we're going to pursue the presence of God together. The second thing, verse 23, he says this, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. The word hold on literally means like a firm grip. I don't know if you've ever had to hold on for dear life. We were at the uh, uh, county fair and they have this bar that you can hang, you can literally hold on to it. And if you can do it for two minutes, you win $100. Guess what? Nobody can hold on for two whole minutes from this bar. It's like everyone gives up. And you would think two minutes is nothing. I can do it. You would be amazed. Here's the thing. When we lose the art of gathering, what we're finding, what the data is showing is that people lose the grip on their convictions, on their faith in Jesus. It's so important. The second reason why we gather is that we gather to pursue God's truth together. We gather to hold tightly without wavering. And I know what you're thinking. I can go online, I can go on YouTube, and I can find amazing sermons out there. The top preachers in the world, even, even preachers from the past, I can go and I can listen to their sermons, and it's so good. And I can fill my mind with truth. But there's also all kinds of other things on YouTube. Have you noticed? With shocking titles, and you're like, ooh, I wanna, I wanna learn about that. That pastor did what? The church taught what? And all of a sudden, the algorithm starts spitting out all this stuff, and before you know it, you're like a full-blown conspiracy theory believing kind of like crazy person who's like planning for, I don't know, someone to like break through your windows all of a sudden, okay? Because you're like, because that's the nature of the world that we live in. You see, there's a cultural current of deconstructionism, which was, um, it's a philosophy that basically says that no writing, no text is completely cohesive and in agreement with itself. And what happens is you could say, well, you know, This happens with the Bible all the time. People are like, well, I don't know that it's like true, true. I mean, it's true, but I don't know if like all of it's true. I'm not sure that all the writers were like inspired. And then there was another council that came and like put the books together. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know about all that. Which, by the way, is exactly what the cultural current says. It's like, eh, how can we know? And what you think is true and what I think is true, totally cool. Doesn't have to be the same because no text is fully in agreement with its own self even. It's deconstructionism. The thing is that ultimate truth is knowable. You can actually know the truth. It's knowable, and the truth has a name. The truth's name is 
Jesus. What did Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. We can know truth. We can pursue truth together through Jesus. And there's also this current of secularism that is what I think probably makes most people lose hold of their confession, of their hope. And it's, it's an indifference to or rejection or exclusion of religion or religious considerations. And what it leads to is values with no substance. If you want to see this in action, watch cartoons with your children, like regular modern cartoons, and just see what, what's the moral of the story, okay? And what you're going to find are values that have zero substance. Here's the value. Girls are awesome. They can do everything that boys, boys can do. They're often the hero of every story. Girls, you are awesome, okay? Don't, don't get mad at me. You're awesome. I know you're awesome. Be yourself. Be true to yourself. Don't be afraid to be yourself. That's the moral of every kid's cartoon now. Why? Because they have nothing else to stand on. Their hands are tied. Because there's a secular world that if we were to say that's right or wrong, well, I don't know if that's really true. It unravels society. It causes people to let go of their confession. And perseverance as a follower of Christ requires a firm grip on the confession of our hope. That's why when we get together like this, we have a Bible verse that we put up here. And we're going to work our way through that Bible verse. We're going to look at it. And if there's anything that I say that you're like, uh, I don't know about that. I'm going to be standing back here somewhere, and you can come up to me and say, Chris, I don't know about that. I'm confused. I don't see how that works. And we will talk about it in a gathering of people. Because we need to have a firm grip on the confession of our hope. Lastly, verse 24. He says this. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. And I just want to hone in on that beginning part when it says, let us watch out for one another. And your translation might say, consider one another how to provoke each other towards love and good deeds. And that, that uh, has a, a sense in the original language of you're going to give serious thought to one another. I'm going to think about you. I'm going to think about your life. And I'm going to give serious thought to you. How many people are giving serious thought to you in your life? Just curious. If you're married, maybe your spouse is hopefully giving some serious thought to your life. Maybe your parent is alive and they're 
giving serious thought and oversight to your life, but I'm just going to guess there's probably not a long list of people who are looking at you with, with consideration of like, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder what's going on. You know, they seemed a little down today. I'm concerned about them. Or, man, they just seemed joyful. And they're giving thought to you. The third reason why we gather is that we gather to pursue fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another. He uses that word provoked. Have you ever been provoked before? Now, when I hear the word provoked, I'm like, I'm typically thinking of like, you provoke me to anger, right? Somebody provokes you, you're like, okay, I'm about to lose it on you because you're just like, you keep coming at me here. Like you are provoking me, but it, it has a, a sense in the word of like a persistence, like of regularly coming to a person. In fact, it can have a sense of irritation. Like you're, you're irritatingly like constant. <laughs> to provoke one another to call forth, to stir up, to incite, or to irritate towards action. And then he says to encourage one another, which, by the way, is parakaleo. So if you've heard of the paraclete, it's the advocate, the Holy Spirit. And he uses the same idea for one another. That we're going we're to be with each other. We're going to advocate for one another. We're going to give serious thought so that I can encourage you, that I can fill you with some sort of encouragement. And it's a lost art. It's a lost art. The reward is that we can be meaningfully bonded and connected to one another in the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So, we gather to pursue God's presence. And that, my friends, is a reward in and of itself. You know that God is omnipresent. But if you're a, a born-again believer in Christ, you've tasted of the, the presence of God. When you, when you were in a place with other believers and you're like, I, I don't know how to explain it, like God was in the room. We gather to pursue God's truth together. The reward is that we, we hold on to our confession and we think well about our faith. And lastly, we gather to pursue fellowship with one another so that we can be meaningfully bonded and connected. So what do we do in response to this passage? It's probably kind of obvious at this point, right? But we'll go ahead and put it on the screen anyway. Our application is that we would get in the habit of gathering with the church. We've been in a, a fall emphasis that we started last week, and here it is. It's good to be together. We had a gathering of our house church leaders, and our very own Glenn Goldsberry at the end said, it's good to be together. And I said, thank you. That's, what, that's what's been on my heart, is that we need times in the room together. It's good to be together. And he says, get in the habit 
of gathering with the church. There's two ways that we gather as the church body. The first is our worship gathering. It's what we do on Sunday. This is what we do here. The second way that we gather is in our small groups that we call house churches. And those are meeting either Sunday afternoon, evening, or on Wednesday night. So the the idea is that we have a rhythm of life in which the cue is, it's Sunday. The habit is, I mean, unless I'm sick, unless I'm on vacation, I'm going to gather with my church family. It's what I do on Sundays. The reward is all the things we talked about. The presence of God together. The truth, fellowship with one another. The same with Wednesdays, with our house church. It's Wednesday. I'm gonna gather with my house church. Why? Because I love those people and I need those people and we get to look at each other's lives and we pray for one another and we, we just enjoy one another. It's good. It's good for me to be together. We had a pastor named Crawford Loritz who visited Houston. He was speaking to the pastors of the Houston Church Money Network. And I think I have a slide for this. And this is what he said in the middle of his message. He says, when you're born, you look like your parents. But when you die, you look like your decisions. When you're born, you look like your parents. But when you die, you look like your decisions. And I think for many Christians, they're having to make that decision every week. Am I going? Am I going to go? I don't know if I want to go. I'm tired. It'd be nice to sleep in. Oh, we had a busy weekend. And a habit is a pre-made decision. Every morning... I don't make a decision about the coffee maker. I just go, right? There's no like turmoil in my soul. I just know I'm going to the coffee maker. And I think that we need to regain this as the people of God. Because my hunch is that the enemy, the evil one, is slowly eroding the confident hope of God's people. I don't say this to you as a guy who's trying to build a thing. I say this to you as a shepherd who cares about you and about your well-being. And when you leave from this earthly life to the next, you're going to look a lot like the decisions you made while you were on the earth. And what I want you to look like is a mature, healthy, loving follower of Jesus who enters into glory, unashamed, boldly knowing by the grace of God, to the glory of Jesus, I did everything I could to follow him while I was here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.